All right, well, good morning, beloved. Today we are finishing up the final section of John's Gospel, if you can believe it. We've finally come to the end, so join me for the last time and turn to the Gospel of John chapter 21, at least for a while. John 21 it, um, has been a, a, a truly wonderful journey, going verse by verse through the Gospel of John. If I uh, counted correctly, this is sermon number 72 in the series, a series we began all the way back in, in August 9th of 2020, a lifetime really ago if you think about it. But um, as I said last week, it has truly been such a blessing each week to open up this gospel um, with you as we have meditated and um, expounded upon the, the scriptures. And, and I think we can all say now, having completed John's gospel, we have an even greater love for Christ. Our faith has been strengthened and, and hopefully our worship has also deepened for him. And um, I'm also excited to announce next week we'll begin our new series through the epistle of First and Second Peter. I can't wait for that. I've already begun studying. But today we're in John chapter 21. We're going to look at that final section there this morning, verses 20 through 25. So um, let's read our text once through together, and, and then after we can see what God has for us today. John chapter 1, beginning in verse 20. This is the reading of God's living and infallible word. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who also had leaned back up against him during the supper and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die. But if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has witnessed these things and we know that his testimony is true. Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Amen. As John brings his gospel of believing to a close, he includes several things here which at first seem unconnected. Um, in verses 18 through 19 that we read last week, we have Jesus' prophecy of Peter's future, by what kind of death he was to die. Then verses 20 to 22, Peter asks Jesus about John's future, and he essentially gets a stern reply from the Lord, essentially saying to him, Peter, it is none of your business what I do with John. You follow me. And then verse 23, John corrects a rumor that had been circling around amongst the brethren regarding Jesus' reply to Peter. 
And then in the last two verses, there's the testimony of John's trustworthiness as a witness and acknowledgement that Jesus did many other things that, that John, under the, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, does not include in his gospel. But as I was studying this last section, I was kind of asking the question, how did these seemingly uh, separate strands all tie together at the end here? And um, I had to reread and reread again a couple of times. And I, I think what unites them all is the theme of trusting in the sovereignty of, of Christ. Twice, verses 19 and 20, Jesus commands Peter, follow me. But in order for Peter to follow Christ, he's going to have to first learn how to trust him, will he not? And, and that's what's built into the threefold question for Peter. Do you love me? Do you really love me, Peter? Because you don't love someone that you don't trust. Peter, do you believe that I am sovereign over everything? That I'm in control of everything? Do you believe that God causes all things to work together for good for those who love God and who are called according to His purpose? Peter, will you still follow me? Even if it means that you will have your hands stretched out and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go? Will you still follow me then, Peter? And so I think that the common thread here that ties all of these verses together. Now last week, you'll recall, we witnessed as the Lord Jesus restored the apostle Peter back into ministry and, and he recommissions him with the, the threefold, go and feed my sheep. And like all of us, Peter was a reclamation project, was he not? Remember back in Matthew chapter 16, verse 22, um, Peter had denied the need for the cross to the Lord. Verse 22, and he, Peter, took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him, saying, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And then not long ago, we witnessed him in the garden. On the night of the Lord's betrayal and arrest, and it was Peter who, who drew out his sword and, and cut off Malchus's ear. He was the quintessential speak first, uh, think later, kind of a guy. He had a zeal for God, but it was often without knowledge. Peter was following the Lord, but if you remember Mark 14, he followed him, but at a distance. And then, of course, it was Peter who had denied the Lord three times, bringing the threefold rebuke on the beach, do you love me more than these? And I often think that there's times where God is purposefully ambiguous in the Bible. And I think he is here in chapter 21 with the, with the these. So that we may fill in the blank. What's the these in your life that are keeping you from loving the Lord your God? With all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your might. We looked at 
Revelation chapter 2, last week as the Lord told the church in Ephesus, I know your deeds and your toil. And he commends them for their perseverance. And that you cannot tolerate evil men. You have endured, verse 3, for my name's sake and have not grown weary. All commendable things. But then in verse 4, Jesus says, but I have this against you. You have left your first love. The Ephesian church had sound doctrine. That wasn't their problem. A bunch of great teachers in the church of Ephesus. A bunch of apostles. Uh, they hadn't fallen for false teachers who had come into the church and tried to lead them astray. That wasn't their problem. Yet somewhere along the way, well, they fell prey to a cold mechanical practice of religion. Oh, I'm sure they still love the Lord, but it just wasn't the way that they used to love Him. Or maybe they had just become distracted by something else, and they forgot about their first love. Whatever the reason, Jesus will not be second in our life. He will only be first. So Jesus says to the church in Ephesus in verse 5 of chapter 2 of Revelation, Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first or else I'm coming to you and I will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Remember when I was first in your life. Remember when I was your first love. When I was the object of your heart's desire. Do the deeds you did at first. It's the same thing he's saying to Peter here in John 21 and what he's still saying to the church today. It's Matthew chapter 16, verse 24. If anyone will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And that's the title of my message this morning, The Words of Christ. That threefold denying yourself taking up your cross daily, and following Him. I've broken our verses up today into four headings. So let's begin with number one, the request. Let's see the request on the back of your bulletin. Notice what it says in verse 20. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who also had leaned back against him during the supper and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? So it says in verse 20 that Peter turned, in other words, he turned around and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. So we get the sense that when Jesus said to Peter in verse 19 to follow me, he meant literally, Peter, get up now and follow me. I have, I have something else more over here to tell you. And as Jesus had began to walk away from the group, remember they're on the shore of Galilee, Jesus had just cooked them breakfast. Jesus got up, began to walk away. So Peter got up and began following him. But then it says, Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved. Now this idea of turning back is never viewed positively in Scripture. One of the shortest verses in the Gospels in Luke 17, verse 32, is where Jesus says, remember Lot's wife. 
Three words. Remember Lot's wife. And what did Lot's wife do as they fled Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 19? They were warned by the two angels. Escape with your life and don't look back lest you be swept away. But Lot's wife was behind him. And there was something back there that she was not willing to let go of. And the Bible says she looked back and she became a pillar of salt. Jesus said in Luke chapter 9, verse 62, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. This statement in Luke 9 comes after he makes several statements to count the cost of following Christ. He said to another in Luke 9, verse 59, Follow me. But he said, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, let the dead bury the dead. So what Jesus is saying is when we put our hand to the plow, we are no longer to be looking back. We're on team Jesus now. We look ahead and we follow him. This theme reminded me of the illustration of the Spanish uh, conquistador, Herman Cortez, when he and his ships landed on South America, the New World, and the first thing he did for his troops was what? Does anyone remember? Burn the ships. Burn the ships because he wanted the troops to understand right there and then. There's no turning back. There's no turning. You better give this fight everything you got because there's nothing back there for us. Nothing. Paul wrote in Philippians chapter 3, verses 13 and 14, Brothers, I do not consider that I've made it on my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. But like Peter, we too can become distracted, can we not? And we take our eyes off of the prize, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that was Peter's problem also in Matthew chapter 14, wasn't it? You know the scene, the uh, disciples are out there on the boat. Jesus walks out there on the water after being up on the mountain and praying to his heavenly father. After feeding, feeding the 5,000, the multitude, Jesus walks out in the water to them and says, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me, bid me come. So he comes out in the water. Jesus says, come, Peter. So Peter got out in the boat, walked on the water, and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind and saw the waves, he was afraid, and he began to sink. He sinks because he takes his eyes off the Lord. But Jesus reaches out and saves him, saying, Oh, ye of little faith, why did you doubt? So I think as we come to this text this morning, we need to ask ourselves the question, what is it for each of us that distracts us from taking our eyes off of Christ and following Him? I came up with a short list of a number of things that I think can distract us. Number one, when we're only looking at ourselves, 
We can become our own favorite person, can't we? And when I'm hyper-focused on me and caught up only on me, I tend to take my eyes off of Christ. Or how about number two, when we're looking at others? That's what Peter does. He's looking back at John. The Lord Jesus said, follow me, and he's in front of him. We love to uh, look horizontally and worry about, well, what about that person, Lord? The Lord says, don't worry about what I'm doing with John. You, Peter, follow me. We take our eyes off Christ when we're looking at everyone else. What about number three, looking at our past? We get caught up uh, looking in the rearview mirror. Satan loves to ensnare us with a spirit of regret and shame from our past. God can't use you. Look at what you've done. You've messed this up before. Why is he going to use you now? But remember what Paul said, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. So our past takes our eyes off of the Lord. What about number four, when we're looking at the world? All the amusements of the world and all those shiny things out there and all those things that the world offers. And then number five, we just saw this happen with Peter. What did Peter see on the water? The, the wind and the, and the waves, right? What was he doing? He was looking at his circumstances. The circumstances that he was in. All the things going on around us can cause us to take our eyes off of the prize, the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is just a short list. <laughs> we can become distracted by being discontent, by becoming envious, by all the idols that we fill our lives with. It goes on and on. But the author to the Hebrews encourages us and teaches us a very important principle. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 2 says... Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witness, let us lay aside every weight and every sin so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Notice, looking to who? Jesus. Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So, back to our verses in John chapter 21, verse 20. So Peter turned, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved. And of course, by now we all know who this is. This is the apostle John the inspired writer of this gospel, who's, who's so humbled to even be called. He simply refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. And then did you notice what it says John is doing? Look again at the text. It says, Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved, following them. So John, one of the, one of the twelve who followed Christ all the way to the foot of the cross, is still following and then later, it was John who was the first to confess at the empty tomb that he believed. And then here at the shore, it's once again John who has his eyes squarely on the prize and is following Jesus Christ. While once again, his friend Peter has become distracted. Peter turned and saw the disciple 
whom Jesus loved, following him, the one who also had leaned back against him during the supper and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? Now this is referring back to that incredible scene in John chapter 13. When Jesus is surrounded by the twelve, you remember they're in the upper room, and Jesus out of nowhere says, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And what a bomb that must have gone off like. Uh, the disciples are shocked. They have no idea who he's even talking about. They all go around the room and say, Surely not I, Lord. Even Judas. And John, you'll remember, is laying so close to the Lord He's all but laying on top of him. He's in his bosom, the Bible says. And he's so close to the ear and to the mouth of his Lord, he whispers, Lord, who is it? And we know the rest of the story. Jesus says, it is he whom I will give this morsel of bread to, and whom I have dipped it, and Jesus gives it to Judas. But why does John mention this at all here? Why? even mention this, that includes Judas in the story. And I think it's because John never really got over the fact that Judas was one of them, but was not a genuine follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. He professed he was following, but he wasn't, was he? So it's a warning. It's a warning for all those who claim to be disciples of Jesus, but who don't truly follow him. Notice now, the actual request that's in verse 21. When Peter saw John, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? What about him? So, so again, follow the story. Peter gets up from the fire. He's following Jesus, but then he's turned around. He sees John is also following them. And so he asked, Lord, what about this man? Peter, you recall, has been given a very clear view of what his future is. Jesus said back in verse 18, When you are old, your hands will be stretched out, and another will carry you where you do not want to go. This he said, verse 19, to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. So Peter knows what's going to happen to him, but now he wants to know, what about this man, Lord? What's going to happen to him? And we do this too sometimes, don't we? We can take our eyes off Jesus and, and begin looking over other people's shoulders and sticking our nose into someone else's business. And we ask, well, Lord, what about me? How come I don't have the opportunity? No one asked me to come worship with the worship team. Why do they get to do this and I don't? Or what, why are they blessed in this way and I'm not? And I'll tell you what it is. It's the desires of the flesh, isn't it? It's ego, it's pride, it's comparison, it's being carnal, worrying about what someone else has, or where the Lord has somebody else, or how he's using them. Was my mom the only one who said, mind your own business? I can still hear that down the hallway. Nicholas, mind your own business. <laughs> and there's a lesson here for us. It's Romans 12. Verse 6 says, each of us have been graciously given individual gifts and talents and callings on our life that differ from one another. 
and we are to use them in proportion to our faith. So instead of asking God, well, what about him and looking around and comparing my life to, to yours, we need to keep our eyes on the prize and what the Lord has called me to do. Paul says in Ephesians 2, verse 10, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. How gracious of our God. If you've ever seen um, horse racing before, you may have noticed that they put these blinders over their heads. They, they look kind of like masks. I guess they're technically called blinkers. Uh, but they put these things on them to reduce their, their field vision because when they're racing, you can become easily distracted. And so the blinders will help them stay focused to the task that is in front of them, not what's going on around them. If you're a runner in a race, you don't want to be running and constantly looking over your shoulders to see who's coming up behind you. That's going to slow you down. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. And then he says later in the chapter, I do not run aimlessly, but run that you may get the crown. Paul knew what kind of race this was. This was a race who were willing to deny themselves, take up their cross daily, and follow Christ. In the book of Acts, Acts chapter 20, Paul is compelled by the Holy Spirit to leave the elders in safety in Ephesus and to return to Jerusalem. He doesn't know what will happen to him there. He only knows that in every city he goes, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit warns him that prison and hardships are, quote, awaiting me. Paul says, however, I consider my life worth nothing to me. If only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus Christ has given me the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. I'd say Paul wore those blinders pretty well. Wouldn't you? He didn't concern him too much with what John was doing over here or what Philip was doing over there or what Thomas is doing over here. No, he said, if only I can finish the race and complete the task that the Lord Jesus Christ has given me. Me. Paul kept his eye on the prize. Well, this is the opposite of what Peter is concerned with. Peter wants to know in verse 21, Lord, what about this man? <laughs> I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to die a martyr's death. Lord, what about him? How does Jesus respond? Well, that brings us to Number two, and the reply. The reply in verse 22, the Lord now replies to Peter's question, and boy, does he ever. Verse 22, Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. This, of course, is uh, hyperbole here, but 
The Lord is saying, if I want him to remain until I come back, a, a clear reference to his second coming, what is that to you? Imagine if John was still walking around here. Yeah, I, the Lord promised I wouldn't die until he returned. I'm 2,100 years old. Boy, the Lord is faithful. What is that to you? In other words, Peter, it's none of your business. If I want John to serve me in this way, or in that way, and it's different from your calling, Peter, what is that to you? Take heed of yourself, 1 Timothy 4.16. So, again, this speaks to the different callings, and, and God has graced each of us in his mercy. Let me read the rest of the context of Romans 12 for you. Romans chapter 12, Paul says in verse 3, for by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. Verse 6, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them in prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving. The one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads Lead with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be genuine. Arbor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Here's this one. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit and serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. So Jesus says to Peter, if it is my will that he remains until I come back, what is that to you? You follow me. And there's an emphasis there in the original language. It's in the present tense. He's been saying, follow me. Here it's you. So, Peter, you keep on following me. You were to follow me and follow me some more, Peter. You keep on following me. Jesus said in Luke's version, in chapter 9, verse 23 through 25, if anyone could come after me, let him deny himself, Take up his cross daily and follow me. This is the part that is additional. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? The natural man does everything he can to hold on to this life. But Jesus says it's not until you Give up your life for me that you find it. 
That brings us to number three. And the rumor. Oh, gotta love those rumors. Notice verse 23, they never get it right. So the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. If Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die, but if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? So, there's a couple lessons we can learn from this text. Number one, this is a danger when we don't handle Scripture correctly, when we don't rightly divide the word of truth, when we're just loose with the words of the Lord. This wasn't what Jesus said or meant. But people kept spreading this saying that John would not die. And so here we see the Spirit says, so it doesn't make the Lord look to be a liar. You need to correct this. This was said, and this, this was the saying that had spread around. So we must always rightly divide the word of truth. And then the second lesson is concerning rumors. It says in verse 23, that this saying spread abroad among the brothers. And so this is an object lesson on spreading rumors within the body of Christ. Rumors uh, otherwise known as gossip in Scripture. And the Bible actually has a lot to say about it. In fact, uh, Scripture warns against spreading rumors in those who engage in gossip. For instance, Proverbs 20, verse 19 says, He who goes about as a slanderer Reveals secrets, therefore do not associate with a gossiper. As you have probably experienced before, our words have power in them. Proverbs 18.21, death and life are in the power of the tongue. James, the first half of James 3, talks about taming the tongue. And it instructs us to control our words. In verse 5 it says, so also the tongue, which the Lord put in the mouth, and yet it still finds a way to come out. The tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts of great things. See how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. That's what rumors do. In other words, spreading that little harmless rumor can cause great destruction. I wonder what kind of a small spark touched off that fire at the Greenfield Forest place there. Was that yesterday? I just saw a picture of a massive fire. I, I don't know what happened, but that's the, the destruction that can come. So what does God instead desire for us to use our tongues for? Well, he desires that we use our words to praise him continuously. Psalm 34, 1. He wants us to speak of wisdom. Proverbs 10, verse 13. And then in Ephesians 4, verse 29, to encourage and build each other up according to their needs, that it may give grace to those who hear. That's what we can do instead. This brings us to our final section of the final chapter of John's Gospel. We close with number four, the record. We see in verses 24 to 25, the record of John's account. Verse 24. 
This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things, who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. The record that John wants to leave us with is that this account of Jesus' life is the truth. This is the truth. I witness the very word of life. In his first letter to the church, 1 John chapter 1, verse 1, this is the, what he writes to them. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That's the record that he wants to leave. Not, look at me, John, and this is what happened to me when I was with the Lord. It's look and follow him, the Lord Jesus. John is content just to disappear into the background. But he says, this testimony is the truth. Then in verse 25, the final verse he closes. And there are also many other things that Jesus did, which if they were written one by one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. No surprise here in verse 25, who's the focus on? Jesus. He begins his gospel with Jesus. In the beginning was the word, the logos. The gospel with Jesus, just as we would expect. Because as Luke records in Acts 4, verse 12, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. History itself is recorded B.C. and A.D. It all revolves around the person of Jesus Christ. So you can imagine, yes, the amount of ink that could have been spilled on all that Jesus did, but all the historical knowledge of Jesus wasn't the point to his writing of this book. The point was that God recorded all that was necessary to reveal himself to those who would believe. John says in chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That was John's purpose. Not to fill up a bunch of books or end up in the New York Times bestseller list. He wasn't concerned about No, John wrote this so that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. The Bible only gives us two options. You're either following Jesus or you're following Satan. You're either with Christ or you're against him. We were all born against him, so we must be born again. We were all born into the world, dead in our trespasses and sins. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, 
in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That's Ephesians chapter 2. 2 Corinthians 4 verse 3 says, The gospel is veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this world who is Satan has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. In 2 Corinthians 11, Paul says, verse 14, And no wonder, for even Satan himself disguises as an angel of light. In John chapter 8, Jesus called him the devil, the father of lies. In 1 Peter 5, verse 8, he is called your adversary, who prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Contrast that list to who John showed us who Jesus is. John's shown us that Jesus is the Messiah, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is the one that Moses and the prophets wrote about. He is the Son of God, the King of Israel. He is the temple, destroyed and rebuilt in three days. He is the bridegroom, the one greater than Jacob. He is the prophet, as Moses spoke of, fulfilling Deuteronomy 18.15. He is the Savior of the world. Jesus is the one sent of the Father. He is the judge, the giver of life, the giver of living water, the light of the world. He is the great I am, the giver of sight. He is the good shepherd. He is the door. He is the resurrection and the life. John has presented Jesus as the fulfillment of the temple, the Lamb of God who fulfills the role of the Passover lamb, the bread of life who fulfills the manna from heaven, the rock who fulfills the rock in the wilderness, giving of the Holy Spirit. Jesus is the sinner's friend, the soul's shelter, the one who paid our debt, removed the Father's wrath, died in our place, and rose to shatter the fearsome grip of death. Oh, to know and to believe Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God, is to have life in his name. To follow him is to walk an abundant life that he came and gave, never thirsting, never hungering, because the soul is satisfied in him, because all who follow love one another, forgive one another, and are joined together through the precious blood of Christ. Oh, to be forgiven, beloved, to deny self, take up your cross, and follow me. What a joy. What a joy it has been to go through this incredible gospel. I, I hope and pray that you've been as blessed uh, as I have by it. At this time, I'd like to invite the worship team. They can come back up here. I think they have something special for us to worship our Lord with. God bless. Thank you.